Story 19 of Sea Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sea Stories. Edited by Cyrus Townsend Brady. Story 19 Rounding Cape Horn. From White Jacket or The World in a Man of War by Herman Melville. Through drizzling fogs and vapors, and under damp double-top sails, our wet-decked frigate drew nearer and nearer to the squally Cape. Who has not heard of it? Cape Horn. Cape Horn. A horn, indeed, that has tossed many a good ship. Was the descent of Orpheus, Ulysses, or Dante into hell? one whit more hardy and sublime than the first navigator's weathering of that terrible cape. Turned on her heel by a fierce west wind, many an outward-bound ship has been driven across the southern ocean to the Cape of Good Hope, that way to seek a passage to the Pacific. And that stormy cape, I doubt not, has sent many a fine craft to the bottom, and told no tales. At those ends of the earth are no chronicles. What signify the broken spars and shrouds that, day after day, are driven before the prows of more fortunate vessels? Or the tall masts embedded in icebergs that are found floating by? They but hint the old story of ships that have sailed from their ports and never more have been heard of. Impracticable Cape you may approach it from this direction or that in any way you please from the east or from the west with the wind astern or beam or on the quarter and still cape horn is cape horn cape horn it is that takes the conceit out of fresh-water sailors and steeps in a still salter brine the saltest woe betide the tyro the foolhardy heaven preserve your Mediterranean captain, who with a cargo of oranges has hitherto made merry runs across the Atlantic, without so much as furling a gallant sail, oftentimes off Cape Horn, receives a lesson which he carries to the grave. Though the grave, as is too often the case, follows so hard on the lesson that no benefit comes from the experience. Other strangers who draw nigh to this Patagonian termination of our continent, with their souls full of its shipwrecks and disasters, topsails cautiously reefed and everything guarded snug, these strangers, at first unexpectedly encountering a tolerably smooth sea, rashly conclude that the Cape, after all, is but a bugbear. They have been imposed upon by fables and founderings and sinkings hereabouts are all cock-and-bull stories. Out reefs, my hearties! Fore and aft! Set to gallant sails! Stand by to give her the foretopmast stunsail! But, Captain Rash, those sails of yours were much safer in the sailmaker's loft, for now, while the heedless craft is bounding over the billows, a black cloud rises out of the sea. The sun drops down from the sky and horrible mist far and wide spreads over the water hands by the halyards let go clew up 
too late, for ere the rope's ends can be cast off from the pins, the tornado is blowing down to the bottom of their throats. The masts are willows, the sails ribbons, the cordage wool. The whole ship is brewed into the yeast of the gale. And now, if when the first green sea breaks over him, Captain Rash is not swept overboard, he has his hands full, to be sure. In all probability, his three masts have gone by the board, and raveled into list, his sails are floating in the air. Or perhaps the ship broaches too, or is brought by the lee. In either case, heaven help the sailors, their wives, and their little ones, and heaven help the underwriters. Familiarity with danger makes a brave man braver, but less daring. Thus with seamen, he who goes the oftenest round Cape Horn goes the most circumspectly. A veteran mariner is never deceived by the treacherous breezes which sometimes waft him pleasantly toward the latitude of the Cape. No sooner does he come within a certain distance of it, previously fixed in his own mind, than all hands are turned to setting the ship in storm trim, and never mind how light the breeze, down come his gallant yards. He bends his strongest storm sails, and lashes everything on deck securely. The ship is then ready for the worst. And if, in reeling round the headland, she receives a broadside, it generally goes well with her. If ill, all hands go to the bottom with quiet consciences. Among sea captains, there are some who seem to regard the genius of the Cape as a willful, capricious jade that must be courted and coaxed into complacence. First they come along under easy sails, do not steer boldly for the headland, but tack this way and that, sidling up to it. Now they woo the Jezebel with t'gallant studding sail. Anon they deprecate her wrath with double-reefed topsails. When at length her inappeasable fury is fairly aroused, and all round the dismantled ship the storm howls and howls for days together, they still persevere in their efforts. First they try unconditional submission, furling every rag and heaving to lying like a log for the tempest to toss wheresoever it pleases. This failing, they set a spencer or trysail, and shift on the other tack. Equally vain, the gale sings as hoarsely as before. At last the wind comes round fair. They drop the foresail, square the yards, and scud before it, their implacable foe chasing them with tornadoes, as if to show her insensibility to the last. Other ships, without encountering these terrible gales, spend week after week endeavoring to turn this boisterous world corner against a continual headwind. Tacking hither and thither, in the language of the sailors, they polish the cape by beating about its edges so long. Lemaire and Schouten, two Dutchmen, were the first navigators who weathered Cape Horn. Previous to this, passages have been made to the Pacific by the Straits of Magellan, nor indeed at that period was it known to a certainty that there was any other route, or that the land now called Terra del Fuego was an island. A few leagues southward from Terra del Fuego is a cluster of small islands, the Diegos, between which and the former island are the Straits of Lemaire, so called in honor of their discoverer, who first sailed through them into the Pacific. 
Lemaire and Schouten, in their small, clumsy vessels, encountered a series of tremendous gales, the prelude to the long train of similar hardships which most of their followers have experienced. It's a significant fact that Schouten's vessel, the Horn, which gave its name to the Cape, was almost lost in weathering it. The next navigator around the Cape was Sir Francis Drake, who on Raleigh's expedition, beholding for the first time from the Isthmus of Darien, the goodly South Sea, like a true-born Englishman, vowed, please God, to sail an English ship thereon, which the gallant sailor did, to the sore discomfort of the Spaniards on the coasts of Chile and Peru. But perhaps the greatest hardships on record in making this celebrated passage were those experienced by Lord Anson's squadron in 1736. Three remarkable and most interesting narratives record their disasters and sufferings. The first jointly written by the carpenter and gunner of the wager, the second by young Byron, a midshipman of the same ship, the third by the chaplain of the centurion. White Jacket has them all, and they are fine reading of a boisterous March night, with the casement rattling in your ear and the chimney stacks blowing down upon the pavement, bubbling with raindrops. But if you want the best idea of Cape Horn, get my friend Dana's unmatchable two years before the mast. But you can read, and so you must have read it. His chapters describing Cape Horn must have been written with an icicle. At the present day, the horrors of the Cape have somewhat abated. This is owing to a growing familiarity with it. But more than all, to the improved condition of the ships in all respects, and the means now generally in use of preserving the health of the crews in times of severe and prolonged exposure. Ere the calm had yet left us, a sail had been discerned from the foretop masthead, at a great distance, probably three leagues or more. At first it was a mere speck, altogether out of sight from the deck. By the force of attraction, or something equally inscrutable, Two ships in a calm, and equally affected by the currents, will always approximate more or less, though there was not a breath of wind. It was not a great while before the strange sail was descried from our bulwarks. Gradually it drew still nearer. What was she, and whence? There is no object which so excites interest and conjecture, and at the same time baffles both, as a sail seen as a mere speck on these remote seas off Cape Horn. A breeze, a breeze, for lo, the stranger is now perceptibly nearing the frigate. The officer's spyglass pronounces her a full-rigged ship, with all sail set and coming right down to us, though in our own vicinity the calm still reigns. She is bringing the wind with her. Hurrah! Aye, there it is! Behold how mincingly it creeps over the sea, just ruffling and crisping it. Our top men were at once sent aloft to loose the sails, and presently they faintly began to distend. As yet, we hardly had steerage way. Toward sunset, the stranger bore down before the wind, a complete pyramid of canvas. Never before, I venture to say, was Cape Horn so audaciously insulted. Stunsails alow and aloft, royals, moonsails, and everything else. She glided under our stern, within hailing distance, and the signal quartermaster ran up our ensign to the gaff. Ship ahoy! 
cried the lieutenant of the watch through his trumpet. Hello! bawled an old fellow in a green jacket, clapping one hand to his mouth while he held on with the other to the mizzen shrouds. What ship's that? The Sultan, Indiaman from New York, and bound to Cayo and Canton. Sixty days out, all's well. What frigate's that? The United States ship never sink. Homeward bound. Hurrah, 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 yelled our enthusiastic countrymen, transported with patriotism. By this time the Sultan had swept past, but the lieutenant of the watch could not withhold a parting admonition. Do you hear? You'd better take in some of your flying kites there. Look out for Cape Horn. But the friendly advice was lost in the now increasing wind. With a suddenness by no means unusual in these latitudes, the light breeze soon became a succession of sharp squalls, and our sail-proud braggadocio of an Indiaman was observed to let everything go by the run, his tagallantston sails and flying jib taking quick leave of the spars. The flying jib was swept into the air, rolled together for a few minutes, and tossed about in the squalls like a football. But the wind played no such pranks with the more prudently managed canvas of the never sink, though before many hours it was stirring times with us. About midnight, when the starboard watch to which I belonged was below, the boatswain's whistle was heard, followed by the shrill cry of, All hands take in sail! Jump, men, and save the ship! Springing from our hammocks, we found the frigate leaning over to it so steeply that it was with difficulty we could climb the ladders leading to the upper deck. Here the scene was awful. The vessel seemed to be sailing on her side. The main deck guns had several days previous been run in and housed, and the portholes closed. But the lee carronades on the quarter-deck and forecastle were plunging through the sea, which undulated over them in milk-white billows of foam. With every lurch to leeward, the yard-arm end seemed to dip into the sea, while forward the spray dashed over the bows and cataracts, and drenched the men who were on the foreyard. By this time the deck was alive with the whole strength of the ship's company, five hundred men, officers and all, mostly clinging to the weather bulwarks. The occasional phosphorescence of the yeasting sea cast a glare upon their uplifted faces, as a night fire in a populous city lights up the panic-stricken crowd. In a sudden gale, or when a large quantity of sail is suddenly to be furled, it is the custom for the first lieutenant to take the trumpet from whoever happens then to be officer of the deck. But Mad Jack had the trumpet that watch, nor did the first lieutenant now seek to wrest it from his hands. Every eye was upon him, as if we had chosen him from among us all to decide this battle with the elements by single combat with the spirit of the cape for Mad Jack was the saving genius of the ship, and so proved himself that night. I owe this right hand that at this moment is flying over my sheet, and all my present being to Mad Jack. The ship's bows were now butting, battering, ramming, and thundering over and upon the head seas, and with a horrible wallowing sound our whole hull was rolling in the trough of the foam. The gale came athwart the deck, and every sail seemed bursting with its wild breath. All the quartermasters and several of the forecastle men were swarming round the double wheel on the quarter-deck, some jumping up and down with their hands upon the spokes. 
for the whole helm and galvanized keel were fiercely feverish with the life imparted to them by the tempest hard up the helm shouted captain claret bursting from his cabin like a ghost in his nightdress curse you raged mad jack to the quartermasters hard down hard down i say contrary orders but mad jacks were obeyed his object was to throw the ship into the wind so as the better to admit of close reefing the topsails but though the halyards were let go it was impossible to clew down the yards owing to the enormous horizontal strain on the canvas it now blew a hurricane the spray flew over the ship in floods the gigantic mast seemed about to snap under the world-wide strain of the three entire topsails clew down clew down shouted mad jack husky with excitement and in a frenzy beating his trumpet against one of the shrouds but owing to the slant of the ship the thing could not be done it was obvious that before many minutes something must go either sails rigging or sticks perhaps the hull itself and all hands presently a voice from the top exclaimed that there was a rent in the main topsail and instantly we heard a report like two or three muskets discharged together the vast sail was rent up and down like the veil of the temple this saved the mainmast for the yard was now clued down with comparative ease and the top men laid out to stow the shattered canvas soon the two remaining topsails were also clued down and close reefed above all the roar of the tempest and the shouts of the crew was heard the dismal tolling of the ship's bell almost as large as that of a village church which the violent rolling of the ship was now occasioning imagination cannot conceive the horror of such a sound in a night tempest at sea stop that ghost roared mad jack away one of you and wrench off the clapper but no sooner was this ghost gagged than a still more appalling sound was heard the rolling to and fro of the heavy shot which on the gun deck had broken loose from the gun racks and converted that part of the ship into an immense bowling alley some hands were sent down to secure them but it was as much as their lives were worth several were maimed and the midshipmen who were ordered to see the duty performed reported it impossible until the storm had abated the most terrific job of all was to furl the mainsail which at the commencement of the squalls had been clued up coaxed and quieted as much as possible with the bunt lines and slab lines mad jack waited some time for a lull ere he gave an order so perilous to be executed for to furl this enormous sail in such a gale required at least fifty men on the yard whose weight superadded to that of the ponderous stick itself still further jeopardized their lives but there was no prospect of a cessation of the gale and the order was at last given at this time a hurricane of slanting sleet and hail was descending upon us the rigging was coated with a thin glare of ice formed within the hour aloft main yardman and all you main topmen and furl the mainsail cried mad jack i dashed down my hat slipped out of my quilted jacket in an instant kicked the shoes from my feet and with a crowd of others sprang for the rigging above the bulwarks which in a frigate are so high as to afford much protection to those on deck the gale was horrible the sheer force of the wind flattened out to the rigging as we ascended and every hand seemed congealing to the icy shrouds by which we held up up my brave hearties shouted mad jack and up we got some way or other all of us and groped our way out on the yard arms hold on every mother son cried an old quarter-gunner at my side 
He was bawling at the top of his compass, but in the gale he seemed to be whispering, and I only heard him from his being right to windward of me. But his hint was unnecessary. I dug my nails into the jackstays, and swore that nothing but death should part me and them until I was able to turn round and look to windward. As yet this was impossible. I could scarcely hear the man to leeward at my elbow. The wind seemed to snatch the words from his mouth and fly away with them to the South Pole. All this while the sail itself was flying about, sometimes catching over our heads, and threatening to tear us from the yard in spite of all our hugging. For about three-quarters of an hour we thus hung suspended right over the rampant billows, which curled their very crests under the feet of some four or five of us clinging to the lee yardarm, as if to float us from our place. Presently the word passed along the yard from windward that we were ordered to come down and leave the sail to blow, since it could not be furled. A midshipman, it seemed, had been sent up by the officer of the deck to give the order, as no trumpet could be heard where we were. Those upon the weather yardarm managed to crawl upon the spar and scramble down the rigging, but with us upon the extreme leeward side this feat was out of the question. It was literally like climbing a precipice to get to windward in order to reach the shrouds. Besides, the entire yard was now encased in ice, and our hands and feet were so numb that we dared not trust our lives to them. Nevertheless, by assisting each other, we contrived to throw ourselves prostrate along the yard and embrace it with our arms and legs. In this position, the studding sail booms greatly assisted in securing our hold. Strange as it may appear, I do not suppose that at this moment the slightest sensation of fear was felt by one man on that yard. We clung to it with might and main, but this was instinct. The truth is that in circumstances like these the sense of fear is annihilated in the unutterable sights that fill all the eye and sounds that fill all the ear. You become identified with the tempest. Your insignificance is lost in the riot of the stormy universe around. Below us our noble frigate seemed thrice its real length, a vast black wedge opposing its widest end to the combined fury of the sea and wind. At length the first fury of the gale began to abate, and we at once fell to pounding our hands as a preliminary operation to going to work, for a gang of men had now ascended to help secure what was left of the sail. We somehow packed it away at last and came down. At noon the next day the gale had so moderated that we shook two reefs out of the topsails, set new courses, and stood due east with the wind astern. Thus all the fine weather we encountered after first weighing anchor on the pleasant Spanish coast was but the prelude to this one terrific night, more especially that treacherous calm immediately preceding it. But how could we reach our long-promised homes without encountering Cape Horn? By what possibility avoid it? And though some ships have weathered it without these perils, yet by far the greater part must encounter them. Lucky it is that it comes about midway in the homeward-bound passage, so that the sailors have time to prepare for it, and time to recover from it after it is astern. But sailor or landsman, there is some sort of a cape horn for all. Boys, beware of it. Prepare for it in time. Greybeards, thank God it's past, and ye lucky livers to whom by some rare fatality your cape horns are placid as Lake Leman. Flatter not yourselves that good luck is judgment and discretion. For all the yolk in your eggs, you might have foundered and gone down, 
had the spirit of the cape said the word. End of story 19